0: From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government
1: Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Defense Department may bypass the private sector and build its own 5G network. A request for information out Friday says the department asks the industry how to put 5G for military and commercial users on the same frequencies. FCW reports DOD already controls the frequencies it's proposing to share with the commercial sector. Procurements that are showing up as small business deals in the federal procurement data system aren't really small business procurements, according to the General Services Administration Inspector General's office. The IG found $89 million in procurements GSA recorded incorrectly, and another $120 million where large businesses did most of the work. NextGov reports a coding problem in the FPDS that doesn't let contracting officers change codes when they make mistakes is one of the causes. The Deputy Secretary of Agriculture is leaving his job. Steve Sensky's is returning to his position as CEO of the American Soybean Association. He held that job for 21 years before he joined USDA in October of 2017. Federal News Network reports his last day at agriculture will be November 8th. Some federal employees have started taking home bigger paychecks, but they'll get smaller checks at the start of next year. Nominee for Deputy Director for Management at the Office of Management and Budget, Michael Regas, told you on Sunday how the mandatory payroll tax deferrals will work. Tony Reardon is the president of the National Treasury Employees Union. Tony, welcome. Thanks for coming back on the program. I note a press release on the NTEU website that is headlined, Reardon Asks OMB For Details on Payroll Tax Deferral. And I also note that it's dated September second Here we are toward the end of the month. What do you know now about these tax deferrals that you didn't know at the beginning of the month?
0: Well um, we know that they are now being uh, uh, th- that the social security is six point two percent is now being deferred um, and at that point we did not you know um, Francis let me just let me just say this i You know this whole issue of the uh, payroll tax deferral I think is uh, I think it's outrageous um, that this was forced on federal employees they weren't giving an option they weren't given an option to opt-out which in my view they should have been Um, and it was forced on them before they knew what the financial implications would be and you know there were so many questions out there when are they going to have to pay it back? Is it going to have to be paid back in a lump sum? Is it going to be paid back over the course of each individual uh, pay period once we get into the new year? And and so I think that was a real mistake, um, and I think federal employees deserve better. I think the um, um, I think our our civil service, our government, should do a better job of of uh, uh, taking care of of employees. Let me just give you one example, Francis. So. Um, this just came up uh, yesterday. We, had, we, we heard from a huge number of our chapter leaders and our members around the country, and they wanted to know, wait a second. You know, we thought we were only subject to this uh, deferral if we were making um, uh, more than $3,999 a pay period. And in fact, that's what's been communicated. But what we heard was that there were people who were grossing more money than that, who were um, uh, getting the deferral. So the the money, more money was staying in their account. And so they were asking the logical question, what the heck's going on? So we went to the agency where we were hearing this primarily. And what they uh, said to us is, we'll look into it. We'll get back to you. They just got back to us this morning. And here's what they said. They said that Um, If you look at the gross salary and you subtract out pre-tax FEHB premiums, supplemental dental and vision premiums, flexible spending and health savings account deductions, um, and if that result, after you subtract that out from your gross, is $3,999 or less, then you are um, subject to the deferral. Now, I think this just proves my point that why is it that today, after people got paid, they're finding out about this? This is something that should have been communicated to federal employees uh, long ago. And so I think just the entire handling of this, the lack of of effective communication, the uh, you know not providing people answers to just logical questions. What happens if you retire? Um, and 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 you know between now and when the money is paid back, what happens to you then? Those kinds of things. So. There, that's uh, a lot of uh, of
1: an answer. <laughs> that's okay. Given that we are where we are, though, Tony, what do you want to see the agencies where you have members do now to comply with what you suggested to uh, OMB Director Vogt? You wrote they deserve to be uh, to him. They deserve to be fully educated on the impact the executive order will have on their paychecks and family budgets for months to come. We are where we are today. We can't fix that. Retroactively, but what would you like to see agencies do moving forward?
0: Well, I think they need to answer, you know, all the questions that uh, that remain out there. You know, um, people to this moment do not know exactly how um, they're going to have to go about paying back this money. So there are a lot of questions. I provided uh, um, many of those in um, a letter to uh, uh, Mr. Vote, and and so. I would, um, I would suggest that they get um, these answers out to employees across the um, executive branch. Um, I get it. Can't do anything about what's already happened, but you can certainly at least get people information so they know kind of where they go from here. And I think that's been uh, sorely lacking.
1: Another item on your plate right now is uh, paid parental leave, and there are some restrictions there that you are worried about. What are those restrictions?
0: Yeah, uh, I'd be happy to uh, go through uh, through those with you, Francis. But, you know, before I do that, there is one thing that I want to that I uh, I'd want to mention, because I would take uh, some issue with one of the things that Mr. Regis, uh said on your uh, program on Sunday. Here are the facts. The administration did not support this program. It only became law when Democrats in Congress insisted that the only way that the White House would get their Space Force was to include paid parental leave for federal employees in the defense bill. So the only new leave program that the administration really supported would have required workers to borrow the leave against their own social security benefits, which is not at all the same Um, thing that actually ultimately was passed. Now, with regard to uh, the comments that uh, we provided to OPM on their proposed rule, you know, we always take a really hard look at OPM's proposed regulations to make um, sure that any administration implements the law in the way that Congress intended. Um, And so we put our comments in writing to OPM a few days ago, and I'll just give you a couple of examples of, of concerns that we have. Generally um, speaking, I would say that it appears the proposed rule unnecessarily restricts uh, the program in some ways, um, making it harder for employees to use. And I don't believe that is what um, Congress intended. So, for example, we think that there could be a problem uh, for those whose baby arrives earlier than expected. Right now, OPM says no one can retroactively elect paid parental leave unless they were physically um, or mentally incapable of doing so before the baby arrived. Now, obviously, if the baby arrives early and the parent immediately goes on leave, the parent should still be allowed to elect it after the fact. OPM's proposed rule would seem to make um, that impossible for the non-birthing parent. So that's something that we believe needs to be fixed. And then the next thing that I would mention is that, you know, related to the um, uh, agency discretion is a provision in the draft regulations that allow an agency to require additional um, examinations or uh, certifications of a serious health condition that keeps an employee from returning to work after the 12 weeks of leave. Now. In my view, frankly, the certification from the employee's health care provider should be enough and employees who are ill should not have to jump through additional hoops uh, just to satisfy some arbitrary request for another medical exam.
1: Tony, apologies. We're just about out of time. But thank you very much, as always, for coming on. Look forward to having you back.
0: Absolutely. Thank you, Francis.
1: Up next, recruiting new talent for the cyber workforce. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what's driving cyber workforce reform? You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. The Cyberspace Solarium Commission has new recommendations for the cyber workforce and the Office of Personnel Management. The Commission says flexible pay and updated job classifications could help recruit the next cyber leaders. Ron Sanders is staff director at the Florida Center for Cybersecurity at the University of South Florida, former chief human capital officer at the the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. Ron, welcome. Thanks very much for coming on the program. What's the the Cyberspace Solarium Commission recommending, and how should agencies go about finding those people and doing what the commission recommends?
2: So, Francis, this is sort of like deja vu all over again. The Cyberspace Solarium Commission is is recommending a number of Changes to the uh, federal civil service to make the federal government more competitive for cyber ninjas. Uh, unfortunately, its recommendations have been around for at least a decade, maybe more. It's good. The good news is that you've got a, a dedicated group of legislators and staff people who are pushing those changes from outside the civil service committees. So that's uh, you know that's a, a positive. But uh, I won't bore you and your viewers with. Uh, the gory details of the commission, because you've heard it all before. Uh, every recommendation from every committee on civil service reform has followed the, you know, uh, uh, the same blueprint. Quicker hiring, looser job descriptions, more flexibility, better paying benefits. What else is new?
1: Yeah, my takeaway from all of those recommendations, Ron, also is that it doesn't just apply to cyber people. It applies to every aspect of the hiring process in the federal government that you and I have talked about for 15 years.
2: Right, and look, uh, truth in lending. Uh, I still consult for the the Department of Homeland Security on their cyber talent management system. I also sit on the uh, workforce panel of the NSA Advisory Board. And everybody we talk to says the same thing, Francis. This is the tip of the spear. It's the opening in the door. Get these reforms for the cyber workforce because there's such a compelling, pressing need, and then let that virus spread, no pun intended, well, maybe pun intended, to the rest of the federal workforce. The bottom line up front, the federal government is simply not competitive for cyber talent, at least when it comes to tangibles like paying benefits. The only saving grace is the mission. The mission is the magnet. It still attracts dedicated people to serve in uniform and as civilians. But uh, even there, uh, work-life patterns have changed dramatically, and a system built uh, five decades ago or more for a 30 or 35 year career like mine no longer applies. And yet we're still trying to hire talent under that same model. Uh, Hopefully the Cyberspace uh, Solarium Commission's recommendations will come to pass pun intended, um, for the federal government cyber workforce, because the alternative is it will continue to rely on higher price contractors to do that mission work.
1: The, uh, the two leaders who are leading this effort that you're working on at Homeland Security, Karen Evans, the new CIO, and Angela Bailey, the chief human capital officer there, have both been on this program talking about that effort in the last several months are they doing something different there do you think or should leaders like them at other agencies do something different to get the results that we're talking about here or do they have the tools they need to do these things and just haven't been able to put those pieces together
2: so this is my personal opinion not dhs's obviously yes i think they have the tools they got that the statutory authority to build this system um almost six years ago now Uh, They've been working on the regulations ever since. I've been helping them along with a team of other formers from OPM and my intelligence community staff. So the tools are all there, uh, but look at the timing. Um, You know, you can talk about what hasn't happened to date, uh, but the regulations are, I hope, largely ready to go. Uh, And then here we are in the middle of an election year when, uh, other than the Cyberspace Solarium Commission, nobody's going to pay any attention. So um, my unfortunate prediction is that we're in for another wait of several months before we can turn key. And even if you turn key, you're still months away from actually hiring under the system. But progress is progress. I'm a glass half full person, and uh, anything I can do to help Karen and Angie, and I am doing that, uh, they know that uh, that we're there to support them.
1: So no disrespect to them or any other leaders in the federal government who I think are doing the absolute best they can under these circumstances, but if we all agree, which everyone seems to, that there is a need at every agency, civilian and military and intelligence, to bring these people in, is it time to maybe rethink the whole idea of having every agency competing against every other agency for these talent, uh, these talented people? And maybe is it time to consider... This should happen at, I don't know, OMB level, the DOD level more broadly, and then assign these people where they're needed the most to the agencies where they're needed the most.
2: Well, look, I'm not a fan of a completely decentralized model where agencies compete against one another. Uh, Look, uh, we saw that when I first came to the intelligence community and tried to have a more collaborative approach to hiring. That does not mean the other extreme of centralized hiring, a single register of talent. But there are confederated models that let the federal government set the talent requirements and turn agencies loose to go get those requirements. The good news is that there's enough difference in the missions of the various agencies, from NSA and DHS to FBI, et cetera, that they can make those differences apparent to recruits and hire talent accordingly. So I'd look for something in the middle. It's too decentralized today, it's a mess, uh, particularly with have and have not agencies. DHS is gonna be, hopefully soon, a have agency. DOD, particularly at NSA, is a have agency. There are other agencies that are have nots that don't have those tools, and that competition needs a level playing field. So again, I would advocate a more confederated, more coordinated hiring model rather than every agency for itself.
1: Ron Sanders, great insight as always. Thank you very much.
2: Thank you, Francis. Good to see you again.
1: Up next, building the newest Navy frigates the right way. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the lessons the Navy should learn from building littoral combat ships. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. Construction of the Navy's new frigate is underway. The force can learn lessons from the development and decommissioning of the littoral combat ship program. Lieutenant Thiebaud DeLue, U.S. Navy Reserve, served five years as a surface warfare officer in the Navy, including aboard the LCS USS Coronado. He's writing about the frigate program in the LCS and War on the Rocks, and his opinions are his own and not those of the U.S. military. Thibaut, welcome. Thanks very much for coming on what is your major takeaway from your experience with the lcs that applies forward to what the navy's doing with the frigate program
3: well i think with the lcs i think the navy just kind of bit off more than they could chew um they tried to build a ship that incorporated a lot of new elements um a ship that was built on a, a totally new design um it was built with aluminum hull, with water jet propulsion, uh, they try to incorporate elements of minimal manning, um, Try to incorporate a dual crew system, kind of like they have on submarines. Uh, so ultimately those things just didn't really come together. Um, they didn't really have enough time to finalize the design. And when the ships actually got into production and uh, actually got into the fleet, they just didn't have all those innovative elements actually thought out. So. When sailors actually got on the ship, I think the experience with them was a lot more difficult than what the Navy anticipated.
1: I have spoken to uh, experts on this program about the concept that the new frigate that the Navy's moving forward with is a design that's already in use in Europe. Is that an advantage in your view as somebody who's been on board one of these ships and tried to make it work?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think these frigates, I mean, they're already in use in the French navies and the Italian navies, and they're a lot closer to what we already have in the in the US Navy. They're kind of closer, really, to a destroyer um, than really anything else. Actually, really, in their size, they're actually pretty comparable to a destroyer. So that's you know really important for sailors, because when they come aboard these ships, the systems they're using, the engineering plan they're working on, or maybe the radars, um, the systems on the bridge. These are things that they're already familiar with, um, even down to how the ship actually handles, like how you drive it. Um, So that's huge for sailors. It makes it just a lot easier to train and to actually operate the ship.
1: One of the reasons that I found your piece particularly instructive, Thibaut, is that you wrote pretty extensively about the way the design of the ship impacts the sailors that are trying to make the ship work. And you wrote um, vis-a-vis getting those people on board the ship Um, The FFGX can learn from the failures and successes of the littoral combat ship's specialized training model. And you go on to describe that the initial training that you undertook was not that useful. The Navy later got its act together and did a good job training you and your fellow sailors to work these ships. What happened in that transition period that could apply to the way that they prepare sailors to go aboard and operate the frigate?
3: So you know, with the LCS, I think they had to have a specialized training model because the ships were so different. Um, so, for example, the ships had a different kind of propulsion. Normally, ships have traditional propellers. Uh, LCS had water jets, which are completely different propulsion systems. So the ship actually drives differently when you're on the bridge. Um, so the Navy, because of that, they had to stand up actually different schools, different trainings. actually help sailors to operate the ship um i think the the big takeaway is to design a program that really gives sailors the skills before they get to the ship i think the problem in the navy is a lot of times their training system is more on the job so sailors especially officers are expected to to learn the ship when they actually report to the ship Uh, with lcs it was kind of a mixed bag they had some of the training was effective some was not but the big takeaway thing for me is just to make sure that before sailors actually get to the ship especially if you have this kind of minimal manning model which are sort of trying to replicate with uh, the new frigate uh it's important they come to the ship with those skills already as opposed to actually trying to train sailors when they're already doing their job on their crew
1: thanks very much we'll be right back